there. Welcome to the Moving Up Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Wilson. I'm here to dish out practical advice to help you elevate your business and your life. I'm the CEO of the Wilson Group Real Estate Services here in Nashville, Tennessee. So you know we're going to be covering ground in the real estate industry. But you'll also be hearing from expert leaders in the personal development and entrepreneurship communities. So pull up a seat because we're about to have a lot of fun. It's time for you to move up. This is Jeff Devereaux, Mortgage Banking Executive, Studio Bank. Studio Bank is passionate about what our members create, and we're here to support you through the process. We provide capital and services to build businesses. We offer mortgage and home loan options, whether you're a first-time home buyer or purchasing your fifth home. We work with artists to reach their audiences. We help nonprofits transform our community. And often the most important work we do is simply empowering individuals to pursue their dreams. We're here because what you create matters. Let's create something together. Visit studiobank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender, NMLS number 1761767. Well, hello, everybody. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. And I'm so excited about this program because our guest today is Adam Barber. And Adam is an attorney with Martin Heller, Potempa, and Shepard, specializing in probates, trusts, administration, and litigation, and all kinds of things. So we can't wait to see what you have to say today, Adam. We've got tons of questions we want to talk about. But I'm just going to let you sort of do a brief intro on yourself, and then we'll jump into a bunch of questions. Perfect. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on today. Uh, as a little bit of way of background, uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, my wife, Shannon, is uh, a realtor here at the Wilson Group, and we have been in Nashville now for, uh, for almost 10 years. And um, I started my uh, practice doing bankruptcies. I did that for a couple of years, and then I moved over to the, uh, the government side of things where I got appointed as a special master under Judge Kennedy, where I was uh, kind of a baby judge and uh, made decisions for folks. Um, for, and I did that for about four years, and that was all with regard to uh, to probate, primarily with regard to the, the financial aspects of probates and trusts and uh, conservatorships and guardianships. After um, I left Judge Kennedy's office, I joined uh, the firm at Martin Heller, Potempa, and Shepard, where we are a family firm. Uh, we do, uh, I mean, divorces, personal injury, but our bread and butter is going to be estate planning, uh, probate administration, litigation, uh, as well as uh, trust, conservatorships, and guardianships. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to talk first about probate because that's something that comes up a lot in the real estate world when we're selling a home or a property that uh, has gone into an estate. Um, so can you walk us through that in Tennessee? What happens when somebody dies, what happens with the property? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when somebody passes away, there are, um, as an oversimplification, just two types of assets that we're kind of worried about. Uh, there's going to be probate assets and non-probate assets. A non-probate asset is going to be anything um, that has either a joint owner uh, or beneficiary designation or passes by operation of law. Uh, operation of law meaning that uh, you either have a contract that makes sure that it passes outside of probate or in the alternative there's a statute that directs where that property should go. The probate assets are going to be anything that is in the decedent or the dead individual's name only 
and there is no beneficiary designation, and there is no operation of law in order to pass that asset. Real property uh, is going to be kind of unique. If there is no will, the real property passes automatically at the time of death. And if there is no will, it passes to the heirs at law, meaning uh, if you have a spouse, spouse and children, only a child uh, or children, just to the children, and so on and so forth. And there's a kind of a waterfall effect where if one child were to predecease the parent, then the grandchildren would step into their place if there are grandchildren. And if there is a will, the real property may or may not pass outside of probate, and that's going to be dependent on the terms of the will. If the will directs that the asset uh, becomes part of the probate estate, then we have to go ahead and go, go through probate. If there is no provision, uh, the will passes, I guess, will directs where that property should go, and it passes automatically upon death. So the terms of the will are going to be extremely important if somebody dies, what's referred to as testate, uh, with the will. And at that point, you probably should have an attorney look it over just to make sure. Now, the word probate, people always wonder, kind of, what what does probate mean? Right, yeah. Uh, and probate is just a fancy word for when, uh, when somebody passes, you have to go to the judge. Uh, the judge gives you authority to act. By admitting a will into probate, the the judge is just saying, yep, that's a good will, uh, and this person now has the authority to act under the terms of that will. So generally, uh, when people are speaking of probate, they're speaking of uh, a judicial proceeding. Okay. Overall. So how long does that typically take for the judge to say, yeah, it's a good will or no, it's not a good will? That really depends on the county that you're in. Ah. So each county has uh, different procedures. Okay. Uh, some counties don't require a court appearance. Some counties do require a court appearance. And if they do require a court appearance, you're kind of subject to the judge's availability. For instance, right now in Davidson County, due to COVID, we're extremely backed up for even an uncontested matter. We're looking at mid to late February Oh wow! Um, before okay. we can even get in there. Other counties like Williamson, uh, we can just submit a petition to the court. The court will review it upon their own time. And we usually can get an order back uh, in a couple of days. In the smaller, more rural counties, the chancellors uh, hear that, and most counties have a chancellor that hears all the probate matters, but those chancellors also have to deal with other problems like criminal aspects with murder and adoptions and things that are uh, take higher priority than a probate proceeding. So you may have to wait a couple months before you can get before a judge with those ones okay. uh, as well. So it really just depends on the county where the person passes, and that's going to control where you need to file. So just to be clear, if you die with a will, so testate? Yep, with testate. A will, mm-hmm. um, you put that in front of the judge, goes to court, yep. and he decides if it's good or not. If it's intestate, without a will, then the judge decides who gets what? I mean, or it just automatically goes to family, and if there's no family, it goes somewhere? So there's a statute that controls uh, what's called an intestate succession. Okay. Uh, so when there is no will, uh, an instance, we'll, uh, we'll have one with uh, a wife and a child. Dad dies, has a wife and a child surviving. Each one of those people would take 50%. Uh, the wife is always, in, or not the, I shouldn't say the wife, but the spouse is always entitled to uh, a, what's referred to as a child share, but not less than one third. So in that same instance, uh, let's say that there are now two children, then instead of the wife receiving 50%, each person receives one third. And then in an instance where there's uh, three children, three or more, the wife would receive one third and the remaining children would, would split two thirds of the estate. I see. And then also, I guess, with that, if somebody were to die uh, with no spouse, 
no children, no grandchildren, or what's referred to as no issue, then we shoot up the family tree. Uh, then it would go to the parents. If the parents are, uh, are I guess, predeceased the individuals, then we shoot outwards on the tree on a triangle, then it would go to siblings. If no siblings and to nephews, great nephews, etc. If you don't have anybody in that branch of the trees, then we shoot up one more set of steps and it would go to the grandparents and then outwards to you know aunts, uncles, cousins, things of that nature. I see. Wow. So that could take a long time to identify those folks, maybe? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. It just depends on how far you have to go out. We've been, uh, I have a current situation where one side of the family didn't know the other side of the family existed. Um, so then we just have wow. to interject into the estate and said, no, guys, like, we're here. <laughs> and we're out um, to, uh, I, I believe it's first cousins twice removed. Wow. Yeah. And what's what a lot of people refer to as like third cousins or something yeah. like that. Wow. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Or in some counties, brother or sister. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, and then what if your will, the beneficiary is your trust? Like Perfect. a lot of wills, you're willing everything into your trust and then the trust designates where it goes? Correct. So in that situation, that's for what we refer to as a pour over will. Um, so a lot of individuals um, that have uh, considerable assets or not even considerable assets, if you have minor <clears throat> children, it's a great a great idea to have a trust because a trust avoids probate. And then you have access to the funds and everything immediately, whereas in probate, we have to wait wait a period of time. So what the pour over will does is is it's there for kind of a, like a, a catch-all. Just in case you forgot to put something in the trust, your will directs it to go into the trust or pour over into it. But those assets will be tied up in probate. And I, your previous question was, how long does that process usually take? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be largely dependent on when you file the case. All creditors have a, up to one year from the date of death in order to file a claim against the estate. That one year can be reduced down to four months if you send them actual notice, meaning that you send them certified mail. Uh, we serve them you know, on August 1. They have until December 1 in order to file uh, a claim. And then if they file after that, their claim is forever barred, meaning that you'll not own that debt uh, to them. The personal representative that's appointed has a duty not only to the beneficiaries of a will or the heirs at law in an intestate estate, but they also have a duty to the creditors. So a probate proceeding could take anywhere from, you know, let's say at the earliest, let's call it five months, or up to, you know, we have some that have been open for nine years uh, or so. But ideally, if you know who the creditors are and you serve them, there should be very few reasons why it's open for more than one year. If you don't know the creditors, we always advise to keep the uh, the estate open for one year, and then we know exactly who has to be paid, and we can start to distribute assets. And so when you say creditors, would that mean if you have a mortgage on your house, a loan on your car, student loan, anyone you are owing money to? Correct. Yeah. Anybody that, uh, I guess, yeah, credit card statements are the biggest ones. Mortgages don't generally play, I guess we'll call it, in the uh, in the probate field because they know that they're secured on the real property. And if payments aren't made, they'll just foreclose on it. Right. So they, they don't have to pay an attorney additional funds in order to um, to get what they want. Got it. That makes but, sense. But yeah, anything that you sign that, uh, that you're in debt for. So what if you have your will and it's a pour over will going into the trust and you haven't updated your trust with other things or your will with other things you've acquired along the way, whether it's real estate, car, art, wh- whatever, something that you would want to pass on. What happens when stuff is, your 
some of your personal properties out or real property doesn't make it onto the paper? Well, um, so that's going to largely depend on um, do we have to uh, deal with liquid assets? Um, let's say like a bank account or something like that. There is a, uh, a short process that if, it's, if we're only dealing with the real property, we can move that real property into the trust without the necessity of going through what we refer to as a full administration, meaning giving notice to creditors and keeping everything in, I guess, abeyance for you know, that period of time while we're waiting on the creditors. And that's called muniment of title. And basically what that is, is you submit the will to the judge and the judge goes, yup, that's a good will. And then we take the, the order from the judge and the, the copy of the will and record it at the register of deeds. And that affects the change of title to the property. But if there are liquid assets um, that you forgot to either name your trust as a beneficiary, then we have to go through the full dance of, uh, of the full administration, give notice to creditors, and wait. And so that money kind of is just sitting in an estate account, and nobody has access to it. And that uh, that's a primary complaint that we get from folks is, uh, you know, well, that's my money. I, I want it right now. And like, well, you know, what the heck were you going to do if dad lived another six months? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but people... <clears throat> think they have a, I guess, a sense of entitlement that be, just because, you know, mom or dad passed away or husband or wife that, you know, that money is theirs immediately. So this may just be an experience question of what I've experienced when I've had estate properties and let's say there's four or five siblings or maybe even two siblings and um, dad passed away and they're, you know, there's, I don't know, 40,000 in the estate or something. There's not a lot of money and everyone's going to get like 10, 15 grand. I have never seen people turn on each other, families turn on each other for the smallest amount of money. And I know it's all relative, but do y'all see a lot of that where... Oh, yeah. It yeah. drives people crazy. And that's why we're in business. Yeah, well, true that. <laughs> yeah, Cause, true that. Yeah, because yeah, it... Uh, I mean, people that have semi-decent relationships, those are the ones that go sour pretty quickly. Mm. For the most part, we get a lot of families that are like, yeah, you know, Jim's the eldest brother. We all trust him. Uh, he's good to go, and we know he's going to do the good thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, you'd be, I would, I'd like to say shocked uh, about <laughs> yeah, right? how, how often families hate each other. But um, when I was on the bench, uh, I had four family members uh, arguing for about five hours. And what it turned out to be, and there was five attorneys involved, all charging 250 to three hours or $300 per hour. And it turns out all these family members were arguing over a cedar chest uh, that was worth maybe a couple hundred bucks mm. at that. <laughs> and, yeah, then, yeah. and then you're like, you guys are that stupid yeah. um, that uh, and that stubborn to waste, you know, $2,500 just today per person, you know, on, wow. on arguing. Yeah. That's just perspective, right? Yeah, You is. can't agree on anything. I have two questions just out of curiosity. One, when you say notice to creditors, mm -hmm. are they still putting it in the newspaper? Because <laughs> I are. can, I know one person who gets the newspaper every day. Is that my mom? Yeah. <laughs> okay, two. <laughs> Your mom and my father-in-law. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're still, that. that yep. is where they put it. That's okay. still considered good notice, even though no one mm. reads the newspaper. Well, there's a guy okay. at Blue Moon. I go to Blue Moon a lot uh, yes. for breakfast on Sundays after church. And there's always a guy sitting at the bar reading the Tennessean. And I always go, I'm like, I love you. I love that you're still reading <laughs> yes. the actual paper, paper. Yeah. You know? And then my next question is, if a judge, what would make a judge say, nope, that's not a goodwill? Great question, Heather. Yep. So in Tennessee, uh, and every state's different, but in Tennessee, there are a couple different requirements. One, uh, it has to be signed 
by, I guess there's, to uh, let's step back, there are a couple different types of wills. Your traditional will uh, is going to be one that has to be signed by the testator and two witnesses. And they have to be signed in the sight and presence of each other. Where if you were to sign a will and I was in the other room then came in and signed as a witness, that could be, uh, I guess, deemed not a good will. And then with those witnesses, you also have to have them sign affidavits. Basically, in lieu of their testimony, that you were of sound mind over the age of 18, and that you declared this to be your last will and testament, and you all signed it in front of, uh, in, in the presence of each other. Um, so basically, those kind of wills, to simplify it, the testator has to sign in front of two people, same room, uh, over the age of 18, and be competent. Another type of will is a handwritten will, uh, which is referred to as a holographic will. Mm-hmm. Uh, the holographic wills have to be have all material provisions of it in the testator's handwriting, and it has to be signed. doesn't not need to have a date, um, but it does need to be signed and basically everything in their handwriting. Where people get uh, screwed up with that is they print these things off a line, mm-hmm. uh, where they kind of fill in the blank. They, they print it off and then fill in with their handwriting what needs to be done, and that's not going to be deemed to be a holographic will. That's going to have the same requirements as a traditional will. Another one is called a non-cupative will, excuse me, uh, which is an oral will. These are not, I've never seen one done, but basically it's uh, where you're in a car accident and you're going to die uh, and you say, Christy, I want everything to go to my daughter, Lena. And then you ha- there's a certain requirement that you, uh, within, I think it's 30 days, you have to write it down and then you know go to the judge or something like that. But it, uh, uh, it's basically a dying wish. Uh, type of will. Mm-hmm. Man, in today's age, you'd almost want to video it. You'd hate <laughs> yeah, to see exactly. someone dying, but it's like, hey, can you speak, <laughs> yeah. speak to the flower? Speak yeah. up. <laughs> That's right. And the laws are so far behind technology that, yeah. uh, I mean, I imagine yeah. well, uh, that and could you'd change. you'd be in shock, too, yeah. if, you were, if it was in that type of situation. I would hope you wouldn't think to. Pause. Stop dying. Right. Yeah. Stop dying. Let me get my camera phone. Yeah. Or let me get my smartphone. So when you do a handwritten will, does that have to be done in... Like, like I'm thinking of my will, you know, it's a lot of it's legally stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you just say, okay, I want Heather to get my, I'll take some car. rentals. Yeah. She'll take yeah. my rental property. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so does it just have to be blah, blah, one, two, three main street. Heather goes to Heather Warmbrode. Um, yep. Blah, blah, blah. Goes to my mom. Blah, blah. Yeah. You don't have to have any legalese in it. Okay. Um, by any means. Um, if it does not provide enough direction. Uh, we're dealing with the situation where it says, I went, you know, Jane Doe to have most of my estate. And then the rest of the estate can be split up amongst these people. And you're like, well, you know, what the hell does most mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, and we, we're dealing with six people. And then you have to do what's called a petition to construe that will, uh, where the judge reads it. The judge gives his, uh, I guess, opinion on it. And that's what the will's going to say. Yeah. So if you do a handwritten will, you want to be specific as you can. But it, uh doesn't always happen, yeah. I guess. And then we just were left to the discretion of the judge. And what uh, is going to be interesting is, uh, especially with the uh, the elder generation, writes a lot in cursive. They don't teach cursive in school anymore, mm. to my understanding. And uh, so it's going to be the secret language uh, that old people used to use. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> for, gosh! For the younger attorneys, <laughs> and uh, I mean, even um, you know, the one of our attorneys that uh, is twenty five. Uh, I mean, he's sometimes struggles with uh, with the cursive because, and I do do as well, because we don't see it ever. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess so, I'm one of those old people all of a sudden. Yeah. It, uh, it's crazy because- um, How I do mean, you sign your name? Do you just print your name then? Well, you, you... you write that in cursive, but like, um, 
different people's handwriting. If it, most people have semi-legible handwriting, but if you have not so legible right. handwriting and you write in cursive, I mean, we sometimes have to take that to somebody and be like, hey, what do you think this says? And yeah. I had to get uh, on one of them, I guess that same one, I had to take it to like four or five different people and then have them do independent deciphering, <laughs> deciphering <laughs> for it because <laughs> the handwriting was so bad and in cursive uh, and it's just... Just not what you typically see these days, right? So let me ask you this: So for we have a lot of real estate professionals who listen to our show. So say you're going to go list a house, and it's you know it's an estate situation. Is the number one thing then just to give the address to the title attorney and have them do a pre-title search to see what's going on there, or how? A lot of times the seller, if it's an heir or an executor, may not have all the ducks in a row yet. Yeah, and that's. The toughest thing is uh, kind of like, um, who is your client? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> uh, and that is tough. I mean, um, what happens a lot of times is I'll get a phone call from somebody that says like, hey, this person is trying to sell the house. Can't like, who do we need to have sign the listing agreement? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, a title attorney would be able to do a title search on it. But the title search is going to be limited to more or less public record. And sometimes those affidavits of airship or something of that nature haven't been executed mm-hmm. yet. Um, so they may not know and just go, well, uh, and the title search will also look at, uh, you know, obituaries and things of that nature. Sometimes people don't have those. So the title search could potentially be kind of a waste of time if the heirs are unknown and not in a public record already. Got it. Uh, and that's when we rely on family members uh, in order to tell us who these people are. Uh, and who should own the property. And if there was a will, they should be checking, you know, public record and things like that. And uh, with the will, I mean, the title search would certainly pull that up. Okay. Um, Only if it had been probated, though, Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. So switching gears a little bit, talking about real property, which for non-real estate people, that's your actual real estate. What are the different ways you hold title and how does that impact the ownership? In Tennessee, we, uh, we have a couple different ways. The first one is uh, if a husband and wife own property, that's called uh, tenants by the entirety. Uh, Tenants by the entirety has a a couple protections uh, built in. Can't be attacked by creditors when the first person dies. It passes automatically at the time of death and can only be transferred upon uh, either, you know, order from the court via divorce decree or if both spouses sign off on it. So one spouse can't break the tenants by the entirety by trying to quit claim their deed to someone else. Uh, uh, the next one is going to be, and that one has what's referred to as a right of survivorship, meaning the, the last one to survive gets to keep that property in fee simple absolute, or they own it 100%. Okay. The next one is joint tenants with the right of survivorship. This is not technically recognized in Tennessee, but in 2017, I believe it was the Supreme Court of Tennessee, maybe the Court of Appeals, said, you know what, if uh, if somebody writes with uh, rights of survivorship in there, we're going to recognize that, even though the statutes specifically state Tennessee does not recognize joint tenants. A joint tenancy is where two people own a property together and it has a right of survivorship, meaning that when the first person passes, the I guess next person owns it in fee simple absolute. Or 100%. So, so if Heather and I bought a piece of property together, mm-hmm. I pass away, she gets all of it. My my heirs don't get my share. Correct. Because she has the right of survivorship. Yep. Yep. It passes outside of probate okay. um, by operation of law. So it uh, goes directly to the other person or like, it's like a joint owner. 
Joint tenants with the right of survivorship, unlike tenants by the entirety, can be severed by one of the parties. So if you guys were to own property as joint tenants, you could quit claim your interest uh, to one of your children, and then that severs the right of survivorship, and then it becomes what's referred to as tenants in common. Hmm. Or the last type of property ownership is uh, when you own it with multiple people's uh, tenants in common, where each person owns either a percentage or an equal percentage of that property. It can be any percentage. It can be 1%, 99%, or it can be equal percents where we have you know, uh, 15 kids each own 1 15th of that piece of property. So it just depends on the circumstances with that. And so in tenants in common, uh, I'm just thinking back to our, our probate and our will, mm-hmm. tenants in common, I pass away, my ownership then passes to my heirs. Either and, your heirs or via your will. Via my will, right, yeah, right. Your heirs uh-huh. or beneficiaries. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's always fascinating to me because we learn all of that in real estate school and then we never, luckily, never really have to use it because the closing attorney uses it. And uh, one thing, I had an experience one time where this couple got, they were married, they were buying a house and they wanted it deeded only in the wife's name. Mm -hmm. And the mortgage was only in the wife's name. Yet when it got recorded, it got recorded in both of their names. Unbeknownst to me at that time, the husband had a massive IRS lien against him. Then they get divorced. So I'm gonna, I went back to sell the house and everything was going to the IRS, even though she had bought the house, everything was in her name. He was history. We, we really couldn't find him. It, it was a mess. Wow. So the closing attorney ended up, because he had it in an email, we need this done, just record this only in the wife's name. So it's so important though, mm-hmm. That we understand how it gets recorded, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, because if uh, if there's a right of survivorship in there, if you label somebody that's a, a husband and wife that aren't a husband and wife, uh, it's likely going to take a legal proceeding in order to get clear title in order to sell that later on. And what we do with those, it's called a petition to quiet title. Shh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My daddy saw us talk about quiet title. That was like Wilson family dinner conversation. Shh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that yeah. took me back 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> um, but yeah, with quiet title, uh, I mean, it's basically there's a cloud on the title, uh, either by human error or in the alternative, just because people file fraudulent deeds or fraudulent affidavits. No title company is going to give you insurance until they get a court order. And we have to sue all the parties involved and then um, just figure it out, unfortunately. So speaking of something like that, what's one of the craziest things you've seen in your experience, whether it's on title or wills or probate or it, most crazy of it, or interesting, yeah, whatever? Most of it um, is usually going to involve theft where somebody dies. Uh, we have a current situation where uh, we have uh, what is presumed to be a fraudulent affidavit of airship, a fraudulent quick claim deed, and this girl took a mortgage out on the property, may not own any of the property at all, and has now tried to sell it three times. And uh, we have to get a temporary restraining order out against her. Uh, And uh, the mortgage company is going to be real pissed off when they realize they may not have an interest in this property at all, but that's their fault because they didn't do any of the title work, apparently. Wow. Um, And so, uh, and the guy that uh, we presume that this affidavit and quick claim are fraudulent because it was executed uh, in Georgia while the guy was in federal prison somewhere in Tennessee. So it'd be really tough. And he may have been out. I don't know. That person's not my client. I really don't care. 
uh, for his sake, he can. Uh, I'm just, you know, concerned about my client making sure that they get the money that they they deserve. Right. So most of it is uh, with regard to that. I've also had a client that was trying to defraud Ten Care and sell a property out from underneath, uh, sell a property quickly, and then tried to force a sale without getting a Ten Care release. Uh, and then you get a phone call from the state. Can tell our listeners, um, because I'm, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the whole thing about the 10 care letter, the release, all that, can you um, give a little yeah. synopsis on that? So in Tennessee, our Medicaid program, which is different from Medicare, uh, Medicaid is going to be uh, a federally funded program, and it's generally reserved for individuals that have less than $2,000 of liquid assets and no more than one uh, piece of real property, that you qualify for certain state benefits. But those benefits are being funded by Medicaid. Medicaid. Uh, And once you pass away, if there's a balance owed to them, the state and the federal government like to receive their money. So anytime you open up an estate for somebody that's over the age of 55, you have to get what's called uh, called a 10K release. Mm -hmm. And all title companies like to have this as well so they know that the government is not going to come try to reclaim either the proceeds or the property. And basically, it's a very simple procedure. Where you fill out an application takes two seconds. You send it to uh, to TenCare, and about six months ago, they yeah they made it so you could do it online. You get an answer back within two to three days. Yeah. So it's very easy, and all it is is a TenCare release states this person didn't owe any money to to TenCare for the Medicaid program. So with the TenCare letter and with Medicaid, say the person had a mortgage on the property or had mm-hmm. liens on the property of some sort. Do those liens and or mortgages take priority since they're in the primary position? Do those have to get paid off before TenCare can get their due? Yes. Okay. Yep. And that's just based upon, uh, I guess, the recording. Uh, I guess the first first in line gets paid first, second mortgage, and then TenCare. They get priority. Uh, I should describe it this way. In order for TenCare to get paid in that situation, they're likely going to have to open up an estate unless you voluntarily pay them and you work with them in order to pay them back. If they open up an estate, there's an order of priority of who gets paid. First, because attorneys write the laws, attorneys get paid. Uh, and then administrative expenses, such as court costs, uh, if the personal representative charges the fees, things of that nature, those get paid. After that, you can pay for funeral expenses. After that, taxes, uh, taxes including 10 care. So 10 care is third in priority after attorneys, court costs, administration expenses, funeral expenses then 10 care. After that, every other creditor, if there's any money left over, that's when it gets distributed amongst the heirs uh, or beneficiaries. So. Okay. But on top of, before you even start with the attorneys, the mortgage gets paid off. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The mortgage always has to get paid unless you're able to strip it by some means in a bankruptcy or something what, like that. What if somebody has a home, they're in a nursing home, they refuse to sell their home and they're getting assistance, government assistance to be in the nursing home or, or whatever, what happens? I'm, I'm sort of dealing with a situation like this right now. So Medicare is just waiting? They'll to, just, yep, wait patiently. Wait patiently. Uh, and then once that person passes, they- So they ma- can't do anything with the house now. They can't do anything Correct. until the person passes. Okay. Correct. If they had any, If they had a secondary property, a rental property or something like that, they would just cut funding. So if they found out there was additional assets out there, they would just cut funding altogether. But if it's a primary residence uh, or was prior to them going to the nursing home, that house will be protected until they die. Got it. And then we talked about a little bit earlier about that one-year limitation on creditors. Mm-hmm. That doesn't apply to 10 care. They can file a claim against an estate at any time. Um, so they're, 
the ultimate dog in the hunt. Yeah, yeah. Got so. it. And so the court, once that probate or the estate gets opened, the family can't do anything until all that stuff is paid. Correct. They're not, okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, so that's one of the first things we do when uh, whenever we open up an estate or we have a, um, a sale on property where somebody has passed away is notify 10 care, get a release, so you know what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're easy enough to work with. I mean, they just want their money. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. so can they require a court-ordered sale prior to the person? Yes. Okay. Yep. In those situations, what they do is that you're in situations where the real property passes outside of the probate estate, you're able to claw that back into the probate estate and force a sale. It's called a petition to sell land for the payment of debts. And basically, you're saying there's insufficient assets in their probate estate, but they owned real property when they died. So we're going to take that property, bring it in, sell it, pay us, and in good riddance. Yeah. Any creditor has the right to do that. Ten Cure pretty much is the only one to do that. Okay. But we have helped other creditors, uh, you know, mortgage, second mortgages and stuff like that, in order to get them paid timely uh, instead of just hanging out. Uh, Got so it. We, we have done that in the past as well for them. Yeah. When I first started in this business, um, that whole 10 care letter, I mean, it was anywhere from a 10 to 30 day window oh, yeah. <laughs> before you could get one back. And, you know, I had no idea what one was and you'd get right before closing and the closing attorney would ask, do you have the 10 care letter? And you're like, what? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it always delayed closing. And now this is so great. The last one I did, you know, it was two days and right. I had a 10 care yeah. letter. It was yeah. amazing. I yep. did one and it was like two days. Yeah. And you need a death certificate, but you can go to Department of Vital Records, have a family member go up there, get one same day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cost 15 bucks, mm-hmm. send it off and you'll have your 10 care release in, you know, two days. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Adam, I mean, I'm always mind blown when I have the opportunity to talk to you because you have so much great information to share and there's so much more that we'd love to talk about. So we're probably going to have you back on <laughs> if you'd be willing because yes. we didn't yeah. touch half of my list here of awesome things I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing your uh, information. Yeah, and such uh, helpful. And so Adam is married to one of our agents here at the Wilson Group, Shannon Barber, who's an amazing agent. And so today <laughs> I got you all story about your how you got engaged. Yeah. And she had me rolling on the floor. We won't, it, It'll take up too much time. But it's one of the best engagement stories. So we may share that one on the next podcast, we, too. We like to keep it interesting. Yes, yeah. we do. There, there's no question. So uh, anyways, thanks for being here today. And look forward to the next time. And for all of y'all tuning in today, thank you. If you have any questions for future podcasts or ideas, email us at podcast at wilsongrouprealestate.com. And we hope you love where you live. And if you don't, call us. We'll help you get there. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, guys. The Wilson Group Real Estate Services is one of Nashville's top premier boutique real estate firms. We specialize in working with buyers and sellers for housing, investment, and commercial needs, as well as offering a full-service property management division for your investments. Check out our website today at wilsongrouprealestate.com. Hey, if you're loving the show, go find that little follow button on your podcast app. This will ensure you won't miss a single episode. Until next time.